Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guests today are um, Carol Gold, who is a philosopher, and uh, David Gilmore, the legendary guitar player of Pink Floyd. Oh, sorry, D- Dave couldn't make it. Said the lookalike, uh, Ian Williams. <laughs> it's, the it's the hair, it's a giveaway. Who is a scientist and an artist. Um, so, so we're going to talk about Pink Floyd today. Um, so I want to sort of rewind time back um, Ian, so you were 60 miles of sort of the center of gravity of music in the mid-60s, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, there are two artists from that area, three artists, Roger Waters, David Gilmore, and Mark Nofer, that, uh, that I follow. Um, and uh, they, they came from, from that area. Uh, so what was happening, you think, in London in that time, in the mid-60s? Um, historically, I know that you didn't live there, but was there something sort of going on in that area that, that made all this, you know, incredibly talented musicians? Yeah. Um, well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Clearly, the 60s was a time of great revolution, and particularly in England, I think it's also true in America, but certainly in England at the time, one of the sort of um, spears of that was music, for sure. And so I think a lot of very talented people and musicians migrated to London, and uh, they that musical scene at the time, even though London is a huge place, caused a, a sort of a focus of, of talent and, and young people coming in. And also, particularly even if you look at the Rolling Stones and a number of other groups, they often started from being at school together or university together and then um, formed these garage bands and gradually pulled people in. Um, I think a lot of what one sees in music from that time reflects the the social changes, the really the, the the revolutions of the 60s, 
And, um, and I think that's probably why we see such a creative output at that time. And interesting analogy, if you look at various other musical strains like punk rock or things, they, they've often started, a lot of them have started in England, a lot of them started in London, a lot of them have started in response to social uh, changes, whether it's you know, political uh, governments with which people disagreed, causing them to channel their energies into a new kind of music. Um, so that, that would be my sense, such as it is. So it's sort of um, the, the environment was right in some sense for this type of music to emerge, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Would, you, would you say that is true? Um, yeah, I, well, I think with regard to Pink Floyd, and I may be wrong here, and I'd be interested in both of your thoughts, but um, it was viewed very much at the time, or it was most often played um, in college and university settings. You, you didn't tend to hear it in clubs or, quote, discotheques or things like that. It was very much the sort of thing where you'd sit in a room, smoke dope and listen to Pink Floyd and think you were, you know, going out on the, you were just, you know, wherever. And um, and then I, I feel with Pink Floyd, they became, I think it's really true with Dark Side of the Moon. They then sort of broke through that fairly esoteric, you know, they were making soundtracks for last year and Marianne Bad and, you know, pretty esoteric stuff that your average person in the street wouldn't know too much about. But then they, they managed to, to break through and become really popular with Dark Side of the Moon. Now, one could argue whether is that really a, 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 an impressive piece of work relative to the other things such as, you know, metal, Source of Secrets, things like that, which are not so commercial, you know. After that, they seem to have combined both somehow, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so, yeah. That, that. So, 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 Carol, I, I want to ask you, so you say you're sort of a recent convert into David Gilmour's um, guitar playing. Um, so, so when did you first know um, David Gilmour? Well, I had heard him, of course, I had listened to him because one of my close friends is um, a huge fan of Pink Floyd. I mean, she said they speak to me, they, you know, <laughs> uh, but I was listening to him as a musician, just, you know, in terms of the pure sound. Um, but, and I hadn't, I, I must confess, you know, I hadn't paid as much attention to him, although, uh, you know, I never went to their concerts or anything like that. But when we, after you told me of your intense passion for him, <laughs> I started listening to him and I found that there was great complexity in his playing and in the Pink Floyd sound, I guess you would say. And then I started looking at the lyrics. I mean, I listening to the lyrics and, and looking at them and, and seeing a bit more about them. And one thing that I noticed about Gilmore was that it's very intense when he plays. And, you know, very intense. And he's not focused so much outward on the audience I mean, you can tell I so to me that's very much part of you know he's really creating sound he's listening to his own sound does that make sense you yeah, know and he has so, a very special timber you know tone color and he achieves things that I think 
Well, I, this is not my area of specialization, although I do a bit on philosophy of music and so forth. Um, and I've listened to a lot of classical guitar, but to me, he he's just as interesting as the finest in that genre as well. Um, there is, uh, I think there's something kind of jazzy about him too, about his music. And that's what one of the things that I noticed. And of course, his lyrics are quite universal as you know, we've discussed a bit. Um, and they speak to, I think, people's very deep feelings. Well, I think they, what they speak to are anxieties too, you know, and I think that there is something, um, something um, compelling about that. Because as a lyricist, first of all, as a lyricist or whoever wrote the lyrics, I know he wrote some, and um, actually, no, I think his wife wrote some of the lyrics for his later ones, yeah. But since, uh, uh, since 1993, so Polly Sanson, who is uh, David Gilmore's second wife, um, wrote many of the lyrics, which which is uh, actually a recent uh, information for me. You know, I, I thought David wrote all of his lyrics um, because Polly wanted to sort of um, be anonymous um, because she didn't want to be uh, seen as writing Pink Floyd lyrics, you know, because there were some really good uh, lyric writers before her. Um, so, so Polly Sampson, uh, David Gilmore's second wife, wrote uh, most of the lyrics after, after 1993. I see. Well, you know, to me, they're very introspective. You know, and the fact that he talks about alienation, he talks about, you know, the human condition of aloneness, and I think that that's compelling. But what I found interesting was that when he plays, he's very introspective too. I don't see him, he's not a showman. He doesn't strike me as one. I, am, I, am I right? Or, um, I think that he's, he's very focused on his, his music, his instrument. Um, you know, I've, I've watched carefully a number of the YouTubes of their concerts, and I, I found that an intriguing aspect of it, especially for these, you know, for many of these bands, um, where they do, I mean, they do perform. I mean, if you compare him to someone like Mick Jagger, or you know, any of the Beatles, I guess, um, you know, or uh, whoever, or you know, maybe Eric Clapton, you know, he's also very good, but um, he just seems to be so, so involved and in, in such rapt concentration on the, the sounds that he's creating and because, and some of it I think is improvised, um, especially. Yeah, let's, uh, let's rewind time just a bit. So, yeah. Um, Pink Floyd, um, so this is why I think Ian's uh, perspective will be quite interesting. Uh, started in 1965 uh, with four guys, Sid Barrett, Roger Waters, Nick Mason, and um, Rick Wright. Um, and, and three of these guys actually went to an architecture school in London. And 
they sort of started off like a pop band. So Ian, when you were uh, frequenting all those uh, all those uh, clubs in central London, you know these guys were playing there in the mid sixties, um, and I have to say, uh, I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan, but I have to say I didn't really, in retrospect, I don't like any of the early stuff that the band produced. I don't know if you had any exposure to that, Ian. Oh, yeah, I had a lot of exposure to, um, well, Piper at the Gates of Dawn and The Source of Full of Secrets. I think those are probably one of the first two, right? I, I think. Yeah. Um, the, the film last year in Marianne Bad, the, they played the music for that. And um, when I was at college, um, we always used to go to this strange cinema that played all the weird esoteric stuff. And there's nothing like going to some see some film nobody's heard about, nobody understands. <laughs> and then there's this music there, you know, and it, of course it just, it, 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 what can you say? It's sort of like um, uh, an affectation, whatever you call it. it. It just was instantly cool, regardless of how the music necessarily landed on you. It was just something about it that was different from everything else that was going on. And as I say, it had this sort of feeling of something that was a little more difficult to access, not for the ordinary person. And that sound, I don't mean that to sound snobbish or aloofish or any of those things. It just had that feel to it, you know? And um, although having said all of that, it would be very unusual to go to a club or a party and hear any of their music um, until um, pretty much maybe Atom Heart Mother, which came first, Atom Heart Mother or Metal? Um, I forget, Atom Heart Mother maybe. And that, uh, that, Atom Heart uh, Mother came much later. So you had, uh, as you mentioned, the Piper, the Gates of Dawn, the the Sourceful of Secrets, yeah. and uh, what said something called More, which is uh, sort of a it's a movie track. Okay. Uh, which is fantastic music too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it, in, as I as I was an undergraduate and and I would go to uh, friends' rooms, then often there would be Pink Floyd playing. I mean, that was a sort of a, a, a sign of coolness. You know, you're a, you're, you're a sort of okay person, you know, if you have it going. It was that sort of thing, you know? Um, yeah. So I think it was, um, they were viewed as something very different. It felt that the quality of the music, I, I'm not a musician, so I can't really speak to the complexity of it or the originality, other than that it sounded very different. And the, the lyrics were interesting and not the usual thing. I say the usual thing, the sort of thing the Stones and the Beatles were playing, which is all sort of the perennial, you know, love, separation, journey kind of stuff, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so Carol, you might get bored with this conversation. So, when Ian was, uh, you know, sort of seeing them, so to speak, I, I was in South India. <laughs> <laughs> with a shortwave radio. Yeah. Uh, and it, this is quite interesting, Ian. Uh, I don't know if you remember, 1971 was, um, there was a series, uh, cricket series between India and England. And uh, there was a three test series. Um, and they played at Lords, they played at Old Trafford, uh, and both were draws. And then they played. Uh, Oval. The Oval, yeah. And then, yeah, so this is the first uh, cricket series that India won in England. 
mm-hmm. that being down 100, 100, 100 runs or so in the in the first innings. So 1971, um, you know, I was sitting across the table from my grandfather, who used to play BBC all the time, and uh, and, and this was a massive thing, you know, for 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 India. Of course. And uh, BBC commentators, as you know. Um, very, very neutral. It's almost like they were joys that India won. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? really? And yeah. I was sitting there listening to these guys, uh, uh, and 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 then you know some sort of music came in between those conversations, and that was my first you know sort of introduction to Pink Floyd. And, really, they had you know, Pink Floyd. Uh, on in the test series, really in between. Yeah, so in between, you know, in between the the station identification or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's probably wow. the first time I heard uh, Pink Floyd, and uh, so nineteen seventy one. Um, um, the dark side of the moon is still not there. It was, you know, still there. It was, um, yeah, that was seventy two. Seventy two. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I, I just like the sound, sound of it. Um, and as a little kid in India with no exposure to any sort of Western music. Um, and so that was sort of an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, this is new information. I mean, I, I wonder if anything that had been played in between you sitting there with your grandfather, listening to India beat England for the first time, would have been magnificent. You do, we would now be discussing, I don't know, it could be anything, you know? So it's a strange sort of concordance of things. Um, not to say that it isn't brilliant in and of itself and you wouldn't have come to it, but that's pretty, pretty special. Yeah? It's, it's pretty special, yeah. Of course, go ahead, Carol, sorry. Um, no, I, I, I was going to say, though, that there might have been something. I think the, um, Gil, and I, it's purely speculative, and I'm not speaking as a specialist in this, but, um, you know, there is something, I think, in uh, some of their music that res- would resonate with someone who had, whose ear had been trained to hear Indian music. I see some similarities there, and what they were, um, and I'm saying this because, um, well, one of the things about David Gilmore that that I was really impressed with, in fact, you know, blown away by, is his facility in the highest registers of, and the way he he gets to them, and the way he 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 sort of divides intervals or take liberties with the conventions of, of, of musical intervals. I mean, it, to me, it was very interesting. And so it, it, I could see where that would resonate because in Indian music, there are different sort of principles of keys and harmonies and um, intervals. I think that there's a kind of intricacy. Um, so, I mean, this is just a speculation. <laughs> I, I, I make these connections. But, um, so I, I could see where that would be uh, intriguing. But uh, 
Yeah, so to me that there's a real deviation from anything that was going on, or most of what, I shouldn't say anything, but much of what was going on conventionally. And I'm not a scholar of music of that um, particular era, but I do know that, of course, listening to it, everyone knows about the 60s. Um, and, you know, the, here, at least in the States, I think the music was somewhat different because there was so much protest, you know, the Vietnam War and so forth, and uh, you know, the very flamboyant <laughs> uh, political protests and sexual revolution and, you know, I, the birth of identity politics and so forth. So I think that uh, their music could only have been, well, would be unlikely to have been born in, in the States. And the people who were very big in, I guess, in the 60s, 70s, whatever, in the States, they were California. You know, they tended to be California. Um, but one thing I did read about David Gilmore is that he, uh, he was influenced by a number of people. In fact, he, he said that um, you know you can't you have to copy whatever you want, and um, he he said he just he just copied, but what came out was totally different. And I think that that's partly because his sound, just the pure sound alone, has a personality. And yeah. So it's yeah. It's interesting, uh, Carol, that. Um, so, for instance, you know, I, I was never musical. Um, I didn't really understand music. I didn't really have too much to do with it. Um, and so, you know, so, and, and I had a I had an interview with uh, Paulie Sampson and, and David Gilmore, and uh, I realized that lyric comes after music. So, mm -hmm. so, so, you know. David um, Gilmore gives Polly, you know, maybe 50 different tracks, and then Polly writes some some lyric to it to, oh. to, to one of the tracks, right? Um, I only listen to the you know lyrics, so so you know there, there's sort of a, perhaps um, there are groups of people who understand music. And and perhaps there are groups of less sophisticated people, let's call them, who understand lyrics, right? Because music doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> this is a, do you have a do you have a view on this? You asking me or or um, yeah? I mean, so yeah, so yeah. I'm making a grand statement, right? So yeah, yeah, it is. It's not really true in the sense. So, for example, Elton John wrote all his music in response to the lyrics. Uh, so the lyrics were presented to him, and they, as a fait accompli, I forget the name of the guy who wrote them all now, um, but then Elton John just sat down and wrote this beautiful music to the lyric. Yeah. So it doesn't always work like that. And I think, I mean, isn't this true of Mozart, uh, Carol, that he, he, he often took librettos and then wrote the, the music? Yeah, okay. and there's a whole tradition, you know, of leader uh, in the, in the 19th century, the Romantic period, where you know, they would uh, 
make music based on poetry. Right. Or, you know, the songs would would be written to accompany poetry or you know, something. Uh, or, you know, or a folk song. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, so I, I think, though, that what's interesting here is that in David Gilmore's case, the music preceded the lyrics. So for Gilmore, it was the music right. that he started with. It was yeah. That was at the foundation of it, and that preceded what he was saying. He was speaking with he was speaking musically right. first, and hypothesis. <laughs> in the yeah. in the interview, Gil, that you referred to, um, was there any uh, statement as to whether Gilmore? modified the lyrics or, or did he just so he gave various pieces of music and and she sort of took one and wrote some lyrics and he just took them or did he say well that's not what yeah, my music I mean, they, yeah, that'd be very interesting to know no, no, they, they apparently and i didn't know a lot about this apparently work very well together and uh and she understands him yeah and uh, and so you know, if you get a collaboration like that, you can make beautiful music. And since 1993, um, Gilmore has made um, really interesting, really interesting music, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, Rattle the Rock is, uh, I think, 2014, which is just a phenomenal um, thing. Um, and and so, so, again, you know, rewinding time back a little bit. So, so Sid and Roger Waters sort of grew up in Cambridge. They go to architecture school. They get together. They always had a dream of creating a, a, a group um, before they went to London. And they meet uh, Nick and Rick, and they start a, start a group. And, you know, I listen to some of their earlier stuff. It's, I don't get it. it it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. That is music, um, but then it seems to have gotten some traction, right? And then, um, interestingly, uh, Sid Barrett uh, gone, you know, bent it to Roger Waters says he was schizophrenic, and bent on drugs and, and all of that. But uh, whatever the reason is, he became less effective, and then David Gilmore joined the band. Right. And uh, and things seem to have really, really taken off from there. You know, the, these four guys uh, seem to have created some beautiful music since then. They did. They did hold Sid in tremendous respect. I mean, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, I think, is about Sid, right? And, and yeah. his, his, his genius, I guess. But I, it seems like he did just lose it, whether he was actually schizophrenic. But he it's a very sad story. But hey, um, these things happen, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the early stuff, yeah, perhaps that's true of a lot of creative. When you're coming together and, and trying things out, seldom does it just, you know, all come. But I don't know, but that's so peculiar, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. What, one thing that's interesting about Gilmore is I don't think he studied me. He studied no, no. He started uh, I, studies. I don't think he finished them, but he was an in languages, modern languages or something. Uh, so he didn't have that kind of background. So but he had been playing since he was very young. 
and experimenting with electrical guitars and different types and you know so he was um, he was thinking about it it was it, there were things uh, percolating <laughs> as it were uh, yeah so, so that's an interesting point carol that you know studying music might be a death knell to hey, let me make a grand statement and we can <laughs> that sounds a very uh, even like statement it's <laughs> uh, that knell to innovation you know it, 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 so see so go out to university and i study economics and I say, you know, I can do all this regressions and I'm going to make some stuff up. Um, but but I won't find anything. Um, and, and music is the same way. You know, if you go out and study music, your chance of making something interesting is substantially lowered. Well, I would disagree with that, Gil, and I'll tell you why. Um, because some of the most innovative experimental musicians were <laughs> highly educated, highly trained, like Leonard Bernstein, Debussy. <laughs> I mean, they had to know the principles in order to violate them and change them and experiment. So I think it, you know, it can. I think it can go either way, and it depends also on the genre. You know, and and there are people who these fabulous singers who have voices that sound trained that aren't. Um, and sometimes, in fact, I would, I, I think I know what you're saying because I was listening to some uh, Gershwin pieces the other day uh, that happened to come up on my YouTube feed for God knows what reason. Um, and I listened to um, uh, some of the classically trained artists who were singing, and it was awful. I mean, I couldn't listen. I thought this is not what he wanted. This is, you know, it's not the right kind of jazz. And um, then, uh, you know, I listened to some other people who were more like club scene people or jazz musicians, and it was fantastic. Um, although Gershwin himself, of course, was highly. Yeah, uh, you know, a finely trained musician. But what I wondered is, when you interviewed David Gilmore and Polly, um, what did they have to say about, you know, his his inspiration for his sound? And was he is he aware of his of the uniqueness of his sound and like some of the extraordinary things that people hear when they're just listening to the music itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I obviously did interview David Gilmer and Polly, but um, the, 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 you know, the, the stuff that I watched about them, and, and you said this, Carol, that David Gilmore is not a showman, at least in my, from my perspective. Um, he is performing. He's mm -hmm. a musician. Mm -hmm. And his only goal when he performs is to make the best out of what he mm -hmm. could perform. Um, it's not quite true with Roger Waters, if you've seen him. And I, I've seen both of these guys in concert for a couple of dozen times. Really? Um, <laughs> all around the world. And and Roger Waters is a performer, you know, he, he performs for you. It's, it's not just about music. It's about, it's about a yeah. message. 
So but wait, I, I, I'm sorry, I was going to say, in, in coming on the performance aspects of it, that that is often something people associate with Pink Floyd, is that it's a whole experience, um, particularly in their, their use of electronic sounds, but also just the plethora of percussion and different kinds of, of instruments that they use. And then, of course, it grows and grows and grows, and you've got inflatables and smoke and light shows, and a lot of people... was an experience. I wonder whether how you feel about that. Do you think that adds, subtracts, diverts? It's integral. Um, what do you think? Yeah. So, so Carol, I would I would love to get your perspective on this too. So, when I saw Roddy Waters at in Hartford just two three years ago, you know, he is he's quite old now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And he's oh, <laughs> singing beautiful. Um, it was all about a show, you know. Um, we had Donald Trump pasted all around the wall. Um, we had, you know, it, it is really it's it's uh, it, it's like a show. It's not just music. It, it, it's a message. It's strong. It's clear. Yeah, there's a drama, there's there's uh, their lyrics, there's music, right? It's uh, somewhat operatic. <laughs> In that yeah, and, and so 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 Ian, I, I think I like it. I mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, I like the Pink Floyd show, and and David Gilmore does it too. Yeah. But as Ken was saying, when you look directly at him, he seems to be not a showman, right? He is he is basically inside himself mm. trying to express. So he's a true artist. Mm. Um, whereas if you when you look at Roger, you know, you know he's trying to tell you something. Yeah. He say, go create a revolution, you know, don't waste any time. <laughs> uh, well well let's talk a little bit about the the themes that they're uh, espousing and expanding on. My sense is um, it, it's very sort of particularly in the light of Brexit, although they were much earlier, the the uh, criticism of the um, hanging on to the, the threads of empire, um, the the capturing of of the autocratic schools that they grew up in, that I grew up in, where the empire was still pasted on the wall and all this crazy stuff, you know, and they were in my mind, they were sort of pushing against that. And that's something that I got quite strongly um, from the period that they were most influential for me in that 70s, 80s period, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Carol, if you looked at, so um, Nick Mason and Rick Wright, who are, you know, equal partners in this venture, um, and I, you know, watch some of their, um, you know, sort of feelings about Pink Floyd. And I think Nick, um, Nick Mason was saying, you know, something like, with Roger, it's all about school and wars. Yeah, that's right. Isn't yeah, right? it has been school and wars, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, at some point, these guys said, okay, so we did that. We've done that, yeah. Now yeah, let's, go, let's go do something else. And Roger wasn't, you know into yeah. anything other than that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So, so if you look at the divergence in 1985 between David Gilmore and, and Roger Waters, 
God is still telling you, you know, revolution is needed. You know, go do something. Right. Don't just sit back on your sofa, you know, watch yeah. uh, Fox TV. See what that is trying to tell you. So what do you think Gilmore is saying after that, when he sort of broke out? Because I, I haven't listened to that so much, and I don't have a good sense. If there's a, what themes do you pick up? Are they all over the place, or does he have a strong message? Or is it more, more about the inherent quality of the music, and you make of it what you will? Yeah, I saw a recent one with David Gilmore in Brazil, and he, I was really surprised by this statement. You know, so he was saying uh, something like, yeah, the Muslim world, uh, they're angry. And that's because the Western world didn't really do the right things. But you see, it's not a big deal. They'll get over it. Um, and, you know, things are, you know, going to be okay in the future. I, I like the optimism. Around yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it also tells you, you know, sort of his state of mind. It's basically saying, yeah, let's not shout revolution all the time. Mm -hmm. Let's take the status quo as they appear to be and give it some time. Sometimes, you know, time time heals a lot of wounds. Um, yeah. hmm. well, Justin, I mean, Gilmore is very involved. I, mean, not, I don't know if this is at all relevant, but he's, he's so involved in um, different social causes, you know, Oxfam and so forth. And um, I think he has a very profound sense of, you know, social justice, responsibility, and, and so forth. Um, but one thing that I did see, I was reading about their um, concert in Pompeii. I actually watched a good bit of that. Um, and I mean, there wasn't an audience, but apparently Waters great a lot of anger and he used to he would sometimes turn his back on the audience that they were making all this noise <laughs> and they were coming to hear <laughs> to hear him to hear them and yet so so i wonder you know so it was that even part of the performance you know being quite that there wasn't enough you know, that they were paying attention, but uh, kind of being on him <laughs> that he wanted. It, it's very hard to hear you, Carol. Are you having trouble, Gil? Oh. No? Okay, we can hear you now. Oh, okay, I wonder what happened. It was uh, sort of like last time, there was this strange sort of I don't know. So white noise. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, I, 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 was, I was just hoping it's not the sound of another condominium coming down in Florida. Oh, God. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> yeah, well, I should move to Connecticut. <laughs> no, so. Too much happens. <laughs> so these guys. Um, they had a breakout moment. Um, so, Ian, I don't know if you remember, but Dark Side of the Moon came out in 1973. And I, I clearly remember when I heard it on BBC for the first time. 
probably maybe three months after it was released or something like that. Um, do you have a memory of when you heard it first time? Oh God, yes, absolutely. I had I had a very good, I was in my first year uh, undergraduate and um, I was in uh, a friend's room and this friend, um, he had, he worked at a bakery um, in summer, so he had money and he had a wonderful stereo system, you know, the, the whole thing, the deck, the big speakers, and he had a, a large room and he said, I've just got it, I've just got it. And it, and it was a brilliant summer's day outside and his room was quite dark and he played this. And from those opening, and it was a chord or a note, you know, that dong, and it was just transformative. I mean, as I remember that so, so clearly. And then you just couldn't get away from it. I mean, it was just everywhere um, in the university halls of residence where I spent my first year. So, yeah, that was my first experience of it. And, and I thought, you know, the whole thing about money. But what I was really taken with is, is their hallmark, how they will fade a sound out and turn it into the beginning of the next song. You know, mm-hmm. and that was just sort of so well done on that in so many ways and and it had it felt it like it had a it was a complete entity it wasn't a, a series yeah. of individual tracks it was sort of a revolution of the thematic thematic music you know that there's sort of a a, a different category almost yeah. so dark side of the moon made thematic music quite interesting so again from a philosophical perspective you know this is where I think uh, music became philosophy. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's very existential. And I think that's one reason why it's probably, I think, just historically the best selling album in the world. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that. That's true. And in fact, a, a friend of mine told me this a while ago about Pink Floyd. Uh, because she's a fanatical. <laughs> she said to me, you know, this album is so good. She was listening to it once when I called. And um, uh, she said that, do you know that they had to take it out of the running because it just, it's always at the top and it so outpaces everything else that they don't even count it anymore. You know, it's, and, and it is an extraordinary, extraordinary work. And the lyrics I can I can see, but but I do think that it it is philosophy. I think it's philosophy in many ways. Um, I think in terms of its um, point of creation historically, um, you know, because they were quite um, excited about you know the man walking on the you know, that there was a man who walked on the moon. I mean that was, and it wasn't the dark side of the moon was sort of that about that I mean and you get this even the title is so beautiful it's so evocative um, but I, I do think that it does touch upon some large themes about you know human anxiety human limitations um, alienation um, you know so forth I that's just my untutored point of view yes <laughs> You know, I, I saw David Gilmore saying that they were in BBC Studios, uh, I don't know if it's Radio 6 or something like that, when actually, you know, when people were walking on the moon. 
<laughs> you know, they were doing a, a live record, you know, live uh, thing on BBC, BBC Radio. There are millions of people listening to Dark Side of the Moon, but there were actual people walking right. on the moon, not, not, not able to see it, which is, uh, which is an incredible thing. Um, but my favorite album uh, remains to be Wish You Were Here. And, uh, you know, it, it was created by, uh, it was written by Roger Waters, I think. Uh, it's a lot, lot about it is uh, Sid Barrett, you know, their sort oh, of yeah. the founder right. who, who became mentally ill and, and, um, and by, by then had left. Yeah, the that was such a sad story because I think that uh, that was from an overdose um, or something and his brain was in, so badly uh, injured. Yeah. So, 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 Carol, do you have a favorite album so far? The ones that you listened to so far? The ones that I've listened to so far. Well, I, I like the Dark Side of the Moon, and um, I think that the wish you were here. Um, you know, there is that when you know the the story behind it and so forth. But I think in terms of the music. And but wish you were here has that poignancy. I think that that's a universal theme too, um, because and actually it and, and it has this wonderful you know poetic uh, layers of of meaning to it. Wish you were here. Um, you know, human beings are isolated. You know, death happens. There's a confessional element to it. Uh, you know, it's very appealing. I so far I may change my stuff, but you know <laughs> whether that's but, so, yeah. So, so Ian, so, so what do you think? Do you have a favorite album of Pink Floyd? Um, I find it difficult to uh, choose between uh, "Wish You Were Here," "Dark Side of the Moon." Um, I do, I do like um, "Echoes," which is really a side, I suppose. It's half an album. Yeah. Um, I found that that had quite an effect on me, I must say, both in terms of a combination of the. Um, what you call the electronic effects that are so well well done there. Um, I suppose it, you know, the whole Soviet Cold War era nuclear submarine pinging, the uh, the whole thing. It, it just came as it does. I, um, I, I was at a very impressionable age, um, which brings me back to a question I, I wanted to circle back to, as you mentioned, Carol, and I didn't know this till I was reading about this, that it's the, the world's top selling uh, album, um, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, it would be interesting to look at the demographics of who's buying it and why. So if we had some 16, 17, 18 year olds, I mean, presumably they're buying it, right? I mean, we've already got it. I mean, <laughs> I suppose it could be going out now into parts of the world where it didn't make it before, or is it yeah, now so, down in generations, you know? So it, it says, uh, Ian, 45 million copies sold, 
Um, I remember sitting in Hartford um, uh, um, uh, in a Roger Waters concert, and there was a 22-year-old on my right side and a 24-year-old on my left side. Mm. Um, and I was thinking, hmm, mm. this is really transformational. It transcends yeah. age. Yeah. Um, I wonder how they came to it and what they see in it and whether it's different from what we see. Um, Plus must must be no i i suppose so but but you'll be an interesting example carol because well did you when when did you first encounter it well i i had heard music i guess but i i guess that i hadn't really focused on it um mm -hmm. until fairly recently actually when um gil the first time gil wrote to me i thought hmm. You know, yeah, that guy's a good guitarist, and I, I know, um, I, well, I had a couple of friends who were classical guitarists, very, you know, highly trained, um, who loved him, and, you know, also, um, Clapton and people like that. But they, you know, they, they talked about him, so I listened to them. I mean, this would be maybe. I was so. Of my own physical studies have probably ruined me, Gil. <laughs> but you're an interesting example of somebody who comes to it later in life from a huh? musical background. And it's interesting to hear how it lands on you, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, that, and I'm interested to know just like who's buying it and how do they get there? Does it like their parents, which is usually the last thing that influences <laughs> a young person's, it would be like, ah. Um, but it, it's sort of an interesting question. And what it, 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 it feels perhaps a, a little bit, I mean, are the themes that they're talking about that we've been talking about, um, are they appealing to the youth today? Are they just constant themes? Uh, Constant things. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you some insights into this, Ian. So, my daughter. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you uh, Yeah, I obviously um, mentioned biased, biased her views. Uh, she, she likes David Gilmore. From what I understand, she doesn't particularly like Roger Waters. Uh -huh. And so, th that's actually an important insight, mm. which is. Um, it's a young generation gravitating toward sort of the David Gilmore-esque <laughs> music. Um, I mean, Roger Waters always had a lot to say, you know. He, like I said, you know, he he's always trying to start a revolution. He, he's he's impatient. He's saying that this stuff doesn't work. Go do something about it, you know. Yeah. Whereas David is more about music. Um, and so, so I think you have to differentiate. So, if you, when you ask, you know, what actually makes the young generation sort of gravitate toward this old stuff? There's two different old stuff there. Mm. It looks to me. But then, then, Dark Side of the Moon is, is a constant in that it's so it sells, right? I mean, that was probably still. How would you describe Dark Side of the Moon in terms of a Gilmore? Waters, um, is, is it a, a synthesis of their skills and styles, or is it a start of something 
moving one way, more towards Gilmore, perhaps. Yes, yeah, so, so Dark Side of the Moon for me, the, the lyrics are all written by Roger Waters. Yeah. And, you know, most of the sort of the guitar work, um, it's all done by David Gilmore. Mm. And so then again, you know, there's a combination of do you create music mm. and then makes lyrics to it? Do you create lyrics and make music to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly how they how they did that. Right. Um, it's a huge technical accomplishment. Uh, we're talking about 1973. Yeah. Um, and at that time, it was impossible to create something like this. Um, and so, so they all seem to have seen, you know. So they say Nick and Rick and everybody else say they, you know, it's a first, the only album. They actually worked together so well yeah. that everything sort of came together, congealed, and you know, made something happen. By the time they got to wish you were here, things were starting to starting to break apart. Yeah, fray at the edges. It would be not interesting to know if they had some audio engineer who who was able whether they said this is what we want to do because that they don't have those skills, right? I don't think. And that's quite, it is very sophisticated uh, for the time. Uh, maybe that's just too much technical detail. I, mean, I, just, think, I think these kids they, actually, they, they, they actually invented, yeah. in the way I understand it, some of the technical stuff by right. themselves. Right. So, so it wasn't, you know, sort of Microsoft dropping in and doing stuff for them. It's actually, right. you know. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, Gil, if I may ask, which is your daughter like about um, David Gilmore? Why does she like Gilmore better than um, So, I mean, Ian probably can, can explain this. I think, you know, for the younger generation, maybe Roger Waters is a bit too rough. Um, I don't know if it's the right term. Um, Could be. Um, yeah, much more sophisticated. Um, so, so I have to say, you know, from from my perspective, I, I like Roger Waters a lot, actually. Um, I do too. Um, I, I like I like what he's trying, you know, what he's trying to express, uh, because lyrics is actually more important for me than than music. So. So, so I think that's probably the distinction. If you if you look at the David Gilmore album, it's beautiful music with good lyrics. Look at Roger Waters thing; it's mostly lyrics. He's shouting at you, say things are not working. Go do something about it, and then some music, right? Um, and so I, I sort of gravitate toward the latter. I, I don't know if you answered your question, Carol. I mean, if that's the case, I mean, you don't need that musical aspect of because so I think you're responding to something else. <laughs> you must, other, I mean, you don't, you wouldn't need to, need to hear it in the context of a song, and maybe do something that music that um, engraves it more deeply into your soul and somehow makes you experience those words in a different way. And if it were different music with the same lyrics, it would not. Mm. That's what I think. 
I think that the music, even subliminally, you may not be paying attention to it, subliminally it's affecting your attention to the music. I mean, to the lyrics, sorry. The music is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is, that is true. Um, and so if you want to make a, a sort of a, a differentiation between uh, David Gilmore and Roger Waters, we can look at 1985. So, the, so the war was an exceptionally um, successful album. They made a final cut in 1983, and then by 1985, in spite of all the philosophy that uh, they were talking about, Have, they couldn't get can along. Anybody, can you hear me? <laughs> I can. Yeah. Can you hear hear us, Ian? Ian, can you hear us? You both. Uh... So let's go. Um, let's stop the session and let me send you another link. And let's can you hear us now, Ian? Yes, I can. You both froze. Um, yeah, yeah, know. yeah. We are intermittently uh, freezing. Or whatever reason, I think um, the the internet is broken. Um, uh, and so, so, so what I was saying, Ian, was that. If you look at 1985, there was this big, you know, sort of split, and then Roger Waters went on and did his thing, and Gilmore, Nick, and uh, Rick did his th their thing. Uh, it was a beautiful album in 1987, the momentary lapse of reason. Uh, I don't know, Carol, if you had a chance to chance to listen to that. Not yeah, so the momentary lapse of reason, you know, is, is true, David Gilmore, you know. It's, it's uh, David Gilmore minus Pink Floyd, so to speak. Uh, all the all the anger has been removed, and all the music has been added back. Yeah. And, um, and and then you see, uh, you know, it's sort of a different. So a lot of the you know the real sort of old Pink Floyd fans don't like it because there is a lot of anger in it. You know, it's it's beautiful music. Just David Gilmour doing guitar and and singing, um, and then Division Bell came along in 1994, and uh, that is another beautiful album. Um, and again, the the hardcore Pink Floyd guys don't like it because it does doesn't have Roger Waters in it. I but, may have heard part of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but then. You know, Roger Waters went on and did a bunch of interesting things on, on himself, which was really angry. You know, it's like taking David Gilmour out of Pink Floyd and only anger remains now. And uh, it was also good. I remember seeing uh, Roger Waters in Milwaukee in 1987, two years after I landed in, um, in Chicago. This was my objective, to go see Roger Waters in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know the, um, I, I don't have the the details, but uh, the pros and cons of hitchhiking, radio chaos. I don't know if you guys know these uh, these albums. Um, wow, I but they are they are beautiful albums in in, in themselves. Um, and so, you know, we have a talented group of people together doing very very interesting stuff, but they couldn't stay together. They went went off in different directions and produced really, really interesting stuff on their own. Oh. Do, you, do you miss, do you miss the synthesis then between the 
uh, I mean, you keep using the word anger, the, the call to revolution combined with the musicality, if that sort of splits apart, do you think each has lost something as a result of that? Um, so David Gilmore for me is a, a true musician. Uh, music, he makes music. Mm. Um, he makes beautiful music. Roger Waters um, would rather have a revolution, mm. right? And he's good at that too, you know? Uh, I, I like both of these guys. So when I listen to Roger Waters, yeah, I want to create a revolution myself. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he's more effective by having, I mean, this is too strong a statement, but having the sort of the, the, the beautiful music stripped away or, 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 or pushed more to the background. Um, and it would be interesting to look at the relative sales of the two. I don't know, just some metrics of who's buying it and, and, and why. But uh, but let's go back to 1960s, mid-60s. So go back yeah. to London again. Yeah. And um, what these kids were, so, you know, Beatles uh, were on 3 Abbey Road. They were on 6 Abbey Road. They were actually recording things together. When Beatles sure. were recording things, they were recording things. And... These kids actually, they always had something to say. You know, it's not yeah. like just pop music, you know? No, no, no. no. Uh, that was a message. That was a reason. Yeah, yeah. Always uh, been a message. Yeah. Well, it was a huge rebellion. It was, a, as we talked about, it was a sexual revolution. It was a, um, a break with the, I think in England, still at that sort of old empire stuffiness, the, the 50s, there was still... Um, uh, rationing, I mean, all this thing, and it was sort of now blossoming, and it was just an opportunity, you know. Paris, they were tearing up the streets. I mean, it's a, a not here. Well, I suppose the equivalent would have been, as Carol said, the war, and that engendered a lot of music. I think. Um, okay. So, yeah, I think I think that's really, and again, London was the place because unlike now, where you can create this stuff almost anywhere, you need to have. The, the, the musicians, the engineers, the money, the studios, all of those things were in London, right? So that wasn't too surprising why they would all come there. Um, yeah, from an American perspective, Carol, sorry, uh, from an American perspective, what is your sense that, you know, Beatles um, have been enormously successful in the US? Um, when Pink Floyd came to California for the first time, uh, they were not really that successful. Right. Um, in fact, uh, I don't know if Pink Floyd were, I don't know this, but, you know, so from a concert perspective, were that successful till Dark Side of the Moon and uh, Wish sure. You Were Here came out and a lot of people started listening to it. That's right. That was the success. Yeah. That was a success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they weren't on the uh, what was it? The Ed Harris show. What was the Ed Sullivan show? I mean, when the Beatles made the Ed Sullivan show, then that just sort of gave them that. But they were accessible. They were easily accessible. They were kind of cute, different, long-haired British over here. You know, I mean, the whole thing was very different from these fairly esoteric kind of little bit trippy, weird 
people coming out with this pretty sophisticated kind of music, not three minute songs of I want to hold your hand, you know, so it's a very different. Right. Yeah. It was and it was. Yeah, I mean, it took a little concentration. The Beatles, as you say, were accessible. And I think that I could be wrong about this, but the Beatles attracted even a very young crowd as well yeah, as the right. older crowd. I mean, you know, that, um, you know, I don't know how young, but like what, 11, 12? Yeah, 11 and 12 year olds were classic. Yeah, sure. Pictures you see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's <Yeah>. me. <laughs> yeah, what was happening then? I mean, you know, because I think that um, one thing that was happening is that, you know, there was this, they were beginning to emerge from the 1950s, which were very staid and, and stable. And they were looking at a very different world than kids today, yes, yes. teenagers today. In fact, I would not want to be a teenager today. <laughs> I think, um, never thought I'd say that, but um, it, it's true. I mean, they, they do not have the kind of optimism. Who even thought about the kinds of things that kids today are thinking about? And, um, you know, there, this kind of paradigm shift in education, both in the way it's delivered and the way it's in accessibility. Um, I think that the class structure globally has, has changed. I mean, the class, you know, I've mentioned this before, but I think that the wealth gap has created more social change than almost any other factor. But did kids and who are coming out of the 1950s and early 60s, did, were they thinking about climate change? Um, you know, things like that. And now, you know, and, you know, they, they wanted, they were having good lives. They wanted to enhance them. Middle class kids were having good lives. Um, you know, things were, uh, things were stable. There wasn't the kind of, uh, there was the nuclear family that seemed much more stable. And if you look at the sociological trends, um, that you know, maybe 20% of, say, in America, American families are fit the norm of the conventional nuclear family. So kids today, I mean, I mean, very gradually, this I think there was this accumulation of anxiety, and I think that that has. Um, a lot to do that, and and now we have we have something entirely new. Um, I mean, it's in my experience, and I've been you know college professor, so I've seen this change where they're even questioning their gender identity, and you know tinkering with it, um, and that was simply that that wouldn't have been thought of, and I think in the nineteen coming out of the 1950s, although there were people who were transsexual, but it was very secret. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, the, so, so the interesting question, Carol, is that is music, um, there's a sort of broader soci sociological question, which is the, the type of music that Pink Floyd was creating, does it have a role to play in society today, 
at the face of Facebook and Google and other social media channels. Because if you again, you know, go back to 1960s, there, this was sort of a, a statement uh, to recruit, so to speak, right? The young crowd. Now you don't need, you don't need music anymore. You just go to Facebook and then you put a bunch of crap there and then, you know, a lot of people sign up for it. And so is music really needed anymore? I think music has always been needed. It's been in every human culture and society. It's been a mode of expression. So, yes, and I mean, you hear a lot of, I mean, Facebook people post music. Um, I don't post very often, but often when I do, it's something musical. Um, but, you know, or something I've heard that I liked. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, and, but I do think that the, the social media situation, which I think has become very dangerous, and now they have another source of anxiety, you know, their identities <laughs> are being compromised, and then we have the pandemic, which has further alienated individuals from one another, um, you know, especially the last year. Um, but yeah, I think that they still need music. I think it's important. Um, it's a different experience. They experience it differently. Um, they, I think that there's a lot of fascination with the period of the 60s, 70s, even 80s, because precisely because that can't be replicated today. So I wonder. I wonder, Carol. Though yes, I agree that music is is a balm for the soul and always will be, but. I, if you think about the time when Pink Floyd came to stardom, there were universal platforms, whether it's, quote, the BBC or there was a hit parade or whatever, and everybody had access. I don't think that's really the case. Um, and there is a tremendous fractionation. So you like this particular kind of music and you can find five million people who like that. but other people will have no clue what it is, you know. So I, I wonder, it, it, it is an interesting issue. You've got the, the points that you mentioned, these amazing revolutions going on with um, uh, social media, COVID, global warming, horrendous problems, um, which historically one would say would cry out for musical response, perhaps much like the 60s did or the 20s did or various times in human history where there was the ability to have music and to have it broadly disseminated. And now um, maybe there isn't an opportunity for music to offer that either call to arms or that balm or that interpretation. Well, one thing that just occurred to me when it, you two were speaking is that if we look back at, and I, I'm speaking somewhat off the top of my head, but the, if you if you look back and people like Pink Floyd or some of the other um, Elvis, say, um, you know, people who were doing amazingly new things in music or synthesizing things in new ways, um, this usually heralded some kind of change in society. It didn't necessarily cause it, but it was, I think, 
usually a sign that there was to be some kind of tectonic shift. And I think Pink Floyd was one of those signs, much more so than the Beatles. So leading indicator sort of thing. Pardon me? But there hasn't been any change, I would argue. Has there been? I, I would argue there hasn't been any change in society. Since when? I mean, since, over what? Since 1960s. Has, oh, so, a huge so, the, so the, the larger question would be, has Pink Floyd caused any change in society? I would say no. Well, I would agree with that. Well, I would say that they're not causing it, but oh, I think oh, that oh. they're a kind of sign of it. If you, if I think back at some of the, and even in classical music as well, where things that we think of as very old-fashioned were new at one time. Um, they usually accompanied or were this a sign of something new that was happening that wasn't yet at the surface of consciousness, that wasn't manifested um, widely in society, but something was happening in the zeitgeist. And I think that that's why and then, you know, someone like Pink Floyd bursting on the scene precedes this whole new, um, <laughs> this whole new uh, element of society, this whole new social behavior, social norms. Um, yeah, I think that, that music is, is a very, in, I never thought about it before, but actually it, it is a kind of way to, to see that, to signal that something is changing. You know, when you have someone who's, who's very innovative, I mean, why is why did they get away with it at that time? That's, that's it's, I think perhaps what you're, what you're saying is it's sort of a leading indica indicator, but it's not a cause. And right. I was, as, as you were talking, I'm trying to think, has, has there ever been a case where a, a piece of music or a, a, a genre, I mean, did the blues, cause of change? No, I think that was a reaction to the circumstance. Jazz, which broke out perhaps in the 20s, did that usher in a more sort of post-World War One carefree, exuberant? I, I think it always either paralleled or, as you suggest, foretold, but I can't think of an instance where it actually caused change, that there was a rallying around I mean, people will take pieces of music as an anthem, you know, for their cause. But yeah, I'm not sure that uh, there was ever a call to arms that people rushed out and, you know, yeah, got a I brick think, or voted differently. Yeah, I, I think you know, I think it's too inefficient uh, to cause a change um, because the utility that you get from listening to David Gilmore or Roger Waters is substantially higher than, you know, trying to attempt a change. And so, so it sort of gives you a cover in, in some sense. Uh, if you go to, you know, Roger Waters' concert, you're basically um, advertising, you know, your, your need to change the world. But then, you know, you go listen to the music and you come back and you sleep. Uh, and so, it doesn't, it is sort of a fake um, idea. Um, 
it just gives people a way to advertise. It's like uh, buying a Tesla and parking it on your driveway, saying I'm an environmentally friendly yeah, yeah. car. So, sure. so well, there, there, are, there may be a case. I was I was thinking just about this last night. I was talking to some people at dinner, and I don't know. I'm sure you know this, Carol. They are um, so Verdi's Nabucco uh, is an opera, um, and there's a there's a chorus in there. Vapensiero. Do you know this? Um, which um, Italians want to become their national anthem. And they have a national anthem, but it's just as dreary as every, apart from the Marseillaise, is every as everybody else's national anthem. But they want, and and and, and I was I, I experienced this. I, I went to a performance of of Nabucco um, in Verona, and they they did this chorus piece, and everybody jumped up and clapped and cheered, and so they did it three times, right? And so here was an example of a piece of music that sort of galvanized a. Ah, you know, this is what it is to be Italian. This is a very national pride. Now, did that really? It's sort of producing a change. There's a big movement to adopt that as a as an anthem. So maybe there is case where because music speaks to a different part of the brain, right? I mean, it it, it stirs emotions and spirit that other things can't do. Hmm. Yeah. So I mean, we can test this. Uh, so we can go back and sort of empirically ask an empirical question. Has there, has there been any case in the past where music actually caused a right. change to society, right? I can't really put my finger on it. I, I, I don't know if, if you guys... Well, Beethoven... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, well, Beethoven, surely. I mean, he sort of ushered in the... the romantic... Hmm. So, is that just something that was capture it before it was really there? He was responding to it. He was, he was trying to, you know, he was, he brought it to attention, but he didn't cause it. Um, but I was thinking about something that when Gil was talking about testing it, <laughs> um, that uh, if you think about the Soviet Union, the you know the former Soviet Union. Um, there are many cases of famous musicians, artists, and so forth, who tried to affect the revolution through music. For example, you know, they one of the um, core values of Soviet uh, of the Soviet system was, you know, that every art form should be accessible to everyone. So everything should be easy, <laughs> as, as you were saying, Ian. You described the Beatles that way, or maybe guilty. Um, but that everything should be. And there was uh, there were a couple of very famous composers who got into trouble, um, a lot of trouble, who were tormented and tortured, and you know, and yet if they uh, acted, if they created authentically. They created when they created their music authentically. They were somehow willing to do it, but it didn't cause a revolution. It did in the musical world because it was disseminated into the West somehow. But that was not. It changed nothing, and you know, it was just banned. And there were so many musicians sent to Siberia, <laughs> or you know, or so. I mean. Well, I. 
I wonder if, as you were talking there, I was thinking about that. So um, it's often said that people will point to um, Ulysses, the Wasteland, certain works of literature that harbor the whole new way of, of expressing oneself. Right, yes. And whilst you, whilst you couldn't point to, oh, that caused a revolution or a war or, a, you know, it, it sort of infiltrates all society and then it becomes... It probably does in that sense, and perhaps the same is true with music, it, it, even though it didn't necessarily, and I don't know what the diagnostic or the measurement you would want to see, Gil, that you could draw a line between music and, and a, a concrete occurrence, but if there is a, a change in a style of music that becomes broadly adopted and then disseminates through society, then that changes everyone's yeah, but let me... Perceptions let me, and actions. Yeah, so let me advance another hypothesis, And So one could argue that music could be a good segregation mechanism. So, so I go back to India and, you know, different classes have different types of music. You know, there's a high-end music. I, I don't know much about Indian music, but... Uh, as you go down the classes, you have different artistic aspects, you have different music. So music could be a very nice way to segregate classes in society. Um, so question... yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, it does it, with religious identity. Yes. Well, does it segregate or diagnose? I think it segregates. So like, in you know, if you go to South India, for example, um, we can distinctly see the different classes of people. They have different types of music, different artistic forms, and and so on. So it is sort of an icing on the cake, so to speak, of segregation. So then in the Pink Floyd context, um, you know, do we have something that sort of cuts through? You know, Pink Floyd is not something the, the upper echelons of London would go and listen to, I would imagine, you know, they would go well, to I, the I, opera houses. Uh, and, no? Well, I don't know. I, I think, you have, A, you have no data, and B, if I just had to propose, I think they would. As I said earlier, I think, from my experience, the people that were, were listening to Pink Floyd tended to be university educated as opposed to tradespeople or so-called blue-collar people or whatever. Much more so. Right. Much right. more so. And so I, this that was like intellectual segregation. Yeah, 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 right. Now, so the question is, is it, is it because it was perceived, it started amongst an intellectual group and therefore was perceived as such by, let's say, this is called non-intellectuals, or is it that there's something about the quality of the music, and this could apply equally well to literature, I suppose, or writing or any other art form, that is just not accessible to, without a certain experiential background. Um, I know this is very dangerous territory here, but it's sort of, it is fundamentally interesting. And or it, people- It's a very important question, yeah. I, I think, think it's a very thing, important question, yeah. Yeah, I think that comes to mind is this, uh, there's a terrible, um, um, in the Royal Albert Hall in London, every year there is a, um, a prom concert. I don't know if you've, either of you've ever heard about it, but, and it plays um, a lot of Elgar which was very sort of martial, nationalistic empire, you know, land of hope and glory. 
and all these people are there and they're waving, you know, Union Jacks and the whole thing is just appalling. Um, but that really um, separates them, you know? They, they, are, they would be prime Brexiters, you know, keep England great, you know, let's keep all people out who aren't like us, all that stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it can be a way, it can be sort of a badge in some sense, you know, uh, like wearing a credential of some kind. And we have the same thing here in the U.S., Carol, right? right? I mean, um, there are musicians who go to Trump concerts and there yeah. are musicians who go to Biden concerts. Uh, and, and, you know, people like them uh, differently. Um, well, yeah, yeah, and I think, well, I do think that globalization has played an interesting role in music, so that, you know, you have a lot of, um, oh, like Latin American music has definitely infiltrated the classical world, or maybe vice versa, which I love, personally, I mean, you know, classical, um, you know, many, um, you know, flamenco, uh, for example, has become, um, you know, many composers have, have worked with it. Many people have arranged music to, uh, to, to work with, uh, you know, flamenco and, and traditional music or traditional classical music or tango. I mean, now some of the most important composers are recognized as some of the earlier tango composers. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that I think is, um, is interesting. And I think that's true also. I mean, I think that, actually, I think that the Beatles were trying to achieve that in, in, when they went to India. And of course, actually, it was a British violinist well, no, I, I don't know what you call him. He was a cosmopolitan, but Yehudi Menuhin, uh, a violinist um, who is uh, of another generation. Um, he was the teacher of a, a well-known current violinist named Daniel Hope, uh, who uh, he, he was the first classical musician to play with Indian musician, um, um, Ravi Shankar, the sitar, you know, and that I think was, everybody knew about it, and it became, somehow, it infiltrated classic, um, not classical, pop, pop music, you know, because that's right. when, um, you know, we started seeing um, these rock musicians migrating to or you know making a pilgrimage to India to get enlightened and to and so forth. It, it, that um, if I recall vaguely, not a scholar of the Beatles, sorry, but there was some album that had distinct Indian elements to oh, yeah. and not so much other Asian, but and also African. I think that um, some more recent musicians have adapted African music or certain African. I mean, not that that's a monolithic <laughs> to your form. Well, I mean, 
Right. Paul, Paul Simon would be a great example. He yeah. really did that very well. With, That's um, right. And, and you also, you mentioned Yehudi Menu, and he, he also um, played a lot with Stefan Grappelli, who was a great jazz right. yes. violinist. Right. So there, they, there is this sort of breaking out of genre, um, which amongst classical um, musicians, which is just unusual. And had he not been so well established as a classical musician, I don't think anyone would have been no. that impressed no. or interested in the fact right. that he was playing sure. with Stephen Crippelli, who was a chess right. or would they be interested in the fact that... So he used his stature in the music world to right. to effect a change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Without a change. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah. it's a change... Sorry. Good, good. Yeti Frost. Um, We're frozen for a moment. Can you hear us? Oh, uh, yeah. Will you okay. speak? Yes, I can now. What did you say, Gil? No, no. So, um, so, so in some sense, um, my hypothesis is that music is a very inefficient medium. <laughs> uh, for creating a revolution. Um, nobody can run more distance. Maybe he doesn't know this. Um, Probably. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> this has been great, Carol. Um, thanks so much for spending time with me. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. I loved it. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Okay. Bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.